The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we're going to go ahead and turn to God's Word together. We are um, in the book of Matthew. Uh, Coincidentally, uh, the first two books of Matthew are all about Christmas. So we are going to uh, finish uh, looking at Matthew chapter 2. and this Christmas story, uh, before I read this, if this feels like a bit of a travel log, like somebody's vacation notes, or uh, we went here and did this, and we went here and did this, and we went here and did this, um, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to look at this together and see what God has for us at the end of Matthew. So I'm going to read for us, and then I will pray for God to help us, and then we'll look at this together. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, so this is the Magi, right? Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. I heard a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there, was, there, there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And when he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, as we look at this word, we ask that we would recognize Jesus and this great story that you are telling of redeeming us in him, and that we would find hope in him. Father, deliver us from our many sins, comfort us in our many sufferings, and give us hope through the simplicity of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you guys saw this here, uh, but there was discovered a new painting uh, by Leonardo da Vinci. Can we throw this up here? This painting had been unrecognized for 500 years or so. Let's see, is it coming up? should take it. There we go. Boom. I'm fairly certain that's not what Jesus looked like. Um, but according to Da Vinci, that's a picture of him. Um, but uh, it was it had lain unrecognized for almost 500 years. Um, it had been painted over and had kind of fallen in disrepair. And I guess uh, they had put some lacquer over that made it really, really dirty and dusty and gross. It was actually attributed to one of Da Vinci's um, students. 
and it was sold on auction this year. Um, it wasn't the first time it was sold on auction. It was actually sold on auction in 15, or ni- 1953 uh, for about 45 pounds. And then this year, uh, after it was recognized for what it was, it sold for uh, $451 million, <laughs> which is a pretty good turnover rate, right? 45 pounds into uh, $400 million, and then it was actually an additional $51 million in uh, services and charges and stuff like that. I feel like I'm in the wrong business <laughs> if, I, if I can't charge. Like, wow, that's going to be $51 million to, char- to change that over for you. Um, but it, the painting had gone long unrecognized, um, and I didn't know this, but there's actually only about uh, 20 or so like legitimate da Vinci paintings. I kind of thought he was more prolific than that, but uh, there's only about 20 or so. But anyhow, so the painting had gone unrecognized, and then when it was realized, the value of it, uh, suddenly it became incredibly uh, expensive and important. And I'm sure that we all hear these stories all the time. We can take that down. All the time, it was, you know all these like flea market things where it's like somebody bought this painting and then realized that like there's a declaration of independence in the back. Um, and suddenly it's like really, you know, they spent five bucks and now it's several thousand dollars. But all these unrecognized things that suddenly become valuable, uh, largely depend on our expectations and our biases, right? Like we don't expect to find a Da Vinci under all this muck. We don't expect to find the National the, 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 the Declaration of Independence, unless you're Nicolas Cage, um, under you know this crazy water painting. Uh, but it's our biases, our expectations that change things, um, and we all hope that we're the Sherlock that begins to see the true value of things. Um, there's actually a lot of that going on in this passage as we're looking at this. There's actually a lot of unrecognized things going on in Jesus' life that when we kind of begin to kind of push past the dust or the familiarity of the passage. Uh, we begin to see there is a great value of what's going on in this passage. And frankly, um, there's a lot of value going on that's unrecognized, unexpected uh, to give us hope. I don't know how you're ending 2017. Um, Maybe you're ending it with a lot of loss and pain. Maybe you're ending it with a lot of bewilderment and just wondering, can we all just get along? (laughs) seems like there's a lot of turmoil going on. Uh, A lot of things that would cloud, cloud in and make uh, the hope of Christ, the heart of Christmas, unrecognizable. But as we look at this, I think that as what we're going to be seeing is that there are a lot of things going on in this passage that give us unrecognized hope, that give us Christ in a way that we had not expected, give us a king that comes in and breathes hope into our lives where we felt there was only despair and looking to 2018 not so much to look forward to. So what we're going to do is we're going to pick up with this travel narrative, this travel journal, so to speak, and we're going to see, uh, we're going to see a few unrecognized things that we hadn't expected. So we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to see our unrecognized deliverance. So I know I've already read this, but I'm going to read it again for us, and then we're going to, try, we're going to kind of drill into it, okay? Now when they departed, so again, this is, uh, these were... Um, these are the magi, these are the wise men, these are the guys who are reading stars for what to do with their lives. They're, they were the ones that read the, that do all the horoscope things on Facebook. You know, those are the guys that had just come, that God had led them to worship Jesus. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was fulfilled what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So there's a sense in this, I don't know if you guys remember, um, last year or earlier this year, we preached through the book of Exodus. It feels like it was last year, but it was actually this year. Um, Exodus is this, the second book of the Bible. It's, uh, it's the main story of the Old Testament. The main story of the Old Testament captures God's invasion of Egypt to deliver his people, and he does that by Moses. And the reason that matters for this is that uh, when Moses was born, this is going to sound very familiar. <laughs> when Moses was born, uh, the king decided that he wanted to get rid of all the little babies. Um, and so Moses' mom put him in a basket, put him in the water, and he was saved to then be raised by the Egyptians. And then uh, actually Moses, uh, who is kind of like the main figure of the Old Testament, became a murderer, fled Egypt, and then God called him back to Egypt. So Egypt becomes a part of this main storyline of the Old Testament where Moses leaves to find safety and then Jesus, who kind of picks up on the story and refigures it, Jesus goes to Egypt for safety. Moses goes out of Egypt to uh, find safety, but then God calls him back to deliver his people who are enslaved in Egypt. And Jesus goes to Egypt uh, to be called out. But see, there's actually, there's a part of this where it's like, it's not just kind of like, oh, that sounds kind of, you know, same tune, different story. Like, it's actually intentional. Um, in Exodus, can we pull this up? In Exodus, where it says, um, sorry, this, the internet goes a little slow sometimes. Then we say, then, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So this is Moses to, to Pharaoh. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If he refuses to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So clearly there's a sense in the book of Exodus that at the core of what's going on is that God is trying to save his son. So it's not just, oh wow, there's like a sense of like Jesus of Moses. It's actually a sense of like, no, Jesus, the, the God's people are his son. They're his pe- they're you know, if you have kids, your firstborn son is like, it's the one, as Bill always says, he was the one that made me a dad, right? This is the one, these are the people that God holds dear. And so then when the next verse comes up here, then when Israel was a child, so this is the verse that is getting quoted at the end of our passage. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So I don't know, are you, I don't know if you get confused with all these kind of like old, old Testament verses getting thrown around, but here's a story of what's going on, right? God loves his people, and he will save them from what enslaves them. And so God sends Moses in the Old Testament to take his people out of enslavement. And he calls his people his own son. They're, they're unique to him. He loves them. They're precious to him. But he knows that at the heart level, they're still enslaved. They're still enslaved to sin. They're still enslaved to darkness. And they love their slavery. And so as the Old Testament goes on, uh, God says, no, no, I'm going to call my son, my people, I'm going to call them out of Egypt again. And so that's what's going on. That's how the Old Testament closes. And so then when Jesus comes on the scene, he's not just a new Moses, right? He's not just the one who's going to deliver them. He's actually the one that's going to be the people of Israel. He is the one that fulfills everything that the Old Testament people of God failed to do. They were, Jesus is precious to him. We're going to see that in next week's passage when we, we look at the baptism of Jesus where God says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus is the one that becomes the new Moses where he's going to de- deliver his people out of their slavery and he's going to be the precious son of God. Right, in Moses, 
what happened with Moses is God, God created a new people, right? He made a promise to them. He wrote his law on their heart and he told them, this is what it means to be my people. And now in Jesus, we're going to be looking through as we go through the book of Matthew, what, what's going to happen, right? God's going to call his people to a mountain where he says, you're my people. This is what it means to be my people, right? Sermon on the Mount, it's not on a mountain for no reason, <laughs> It's on a mountain because this is where God says, this is what it means to be my people. And you're going to be my people in Jesus. And I'm going to love you and deliver you. That's, with all, which that, that's what's going on with all this Christmas stuff. I know this seems kind of like a lot of Bible language. <laughs> but what's going on here is the promise of Jesus was in Matthew 1, 21, she shall bear a son. That's Mary. And she shall call his name Jesus for he will deliver his people from their sins. Right, see, at the core of it, the whole Bible is not about political delivery, convenience. It's not about getting your circumstances set up. It's not about uh, getting your life in line so that you're a hallmark, perfect person, whatever stage of life you're in. At the core of the gospel message, at the core of what Christmas is all about, is Jesus saving us from our addiction to ourselves. We are addicted to our own identities apart from God. We live in our own Egypt, in our own hearts. Our own Egyptian enslavement, we are enslaved to something apart from God. Uh, this uh, Dutch philosopher, uh, Soren Kierkegaard, I wish I could name his son Soren Kierkegaard because he's so cool. Um, but he would describe sin as an identity apart from God. Right? He would describe sin as being an identity that you create apart from God. And that's what we're all doing, right? That's when, when, when it says he will come to deliver his people, he'd come to deliver us from our sin. Any way in which we kind of, we hang our hat, we hang our identity on something other than God, right? Some, it could be simple things like, why isn't the house clean? <laughs> like the way I want it to, rather than loving and serving our families the way we should. It could be something like, um, I want to get my way, and if, you, if I don't get my way, my voice and my temper is going to rise. It could be, I want to be, feel welcomed and loved, and so I'm going to find that in whoever and whatever I can. Right? When we find our identities in anything apart from God, that's the Egypt of our hearts. That's the enslavement to sin. So when Jesus comes, right, this, this story of, well, Jesus' dad decided to keep him safe and took him to Egypt, it's more than just a roadmap that they took for their vacation. <laughs> right, it's, actually, it's, it's actually telling us that Jesus is the one who comes to deliver us from our addiction to ourselves so that Jesus himself becomes our deliverer. We rest our identities on him. Right, we often, a part of that, what that means is, um, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but often I, I want my, my, the change in my life to come like a Netflix uh, show. I want to I want to I want to select um, Patience season two, and I want to binge watch it and get it done in twelve hours. I want to change real quick. <laughs> I want to change fast. I don't know, but I don't know what your change project is in your life, or how you want to change or be different. What deliverance you want, right? But we tend to treat it like Netflix, right? Like I want um, Purity season ten, <laughs> and just be done. I want Patience season two, right? I want uh, generosity and giving, season five, and just binge watch them over the weekend, and then suddenly I'm changed and better. But the story of Exodus, right? What, G what God does in the book of Exodus, and God does through Moses, and what God's doing in Jesus, it takes time. 
right? The book of Exodus, it covers about 120 years. It covers about 120 years for God to deliver his people and change them. What if the story of deliverance that Jesus came to write in your life would only sound right, would only be correct if it took a lifetime to describe? What if the change that God wants to do in your life will only be realized and seen on the last week of your life? What if the change that God wants to do in your heart takes a whole lifetime to do? You see, the deliverance that Jesus came to, to do in our lives, it takes time. Sowing and reaping, all those things the Bible talks about of how we change. Right, the fruit of the Spirit that the Bible talks about later in Galatians. You know how long it takes to, like, to build an orchard? <laughs> it takes like, what, 20, 20 years or something like that? It takes a long time get the genes right, get, the, the, get everything to kind of produce, get the crops right, get the ground right, get the water. Hopefully it rains this year, you know. God wants to change you and deliver you, but it's not going to be on your timeline. You see, the, the story of Christmas is about God being silent for 400 years and then him dropping his son in a little manger and then his son would, 30 or so years later, rise and die for us but it takes time. We often get impatient with God's deliverance in our lives. And it's not easily recognized, right? If it takes time, that means that as we're doing life together as a church, uh, you're going to see me get angry, impatient, and be a jerk face as normal. And in 10 years, you'll maybe hopefully see me be a little bit better about it. <laughs> in our families and in our marriages and our lives together at work, the, one of the reasons that God tells us to love our neighbors is to be entrenched in a, in a location and to be there for a long time it's because the change that he's delivering us from and into, it takes time. <laughs> it's going to take time for you to show what it means to be truly patient or loving or merciful or kind or generous in a way that isn't just kind of like a one blip thing, right? It's going to take time to show, although oh, no, this is who they are, because God's delivered them from themselves. He's delivered you from yourself to then begin to show. No, this is the delivering king. It takes time to see what he's doing. It takes time uh, for Jesus to slip, so to speak, through the cracks of your heart and to begin to produce fruit, just like Jesus slips through the cracks of Herod's game plan here. Jesus takes time to slip through the cracks of our hearts uh, to deliver us from ourselves. But I hope that gives you hope. But this Christmas, it might not be... Um, I don't know, for whatever reason, at the end of the year, I kind of do like a self-assessment. Like, how am I doing? How have I changed? What's not changed? And generally, I get like uh, D minuses or Fs uh, along the scale of how I've changed over the year. Uh, but if I were to go back, that's part of the reason why I tell would have a journal. <laughs> Still like, oh, no, look, I was writing this about this situation in my journal a year ago, and I'm a little bit more patient or content or by like one, <laughs> one verb. <laughs> you know, not much. But slow change. So as you, cha- as, as you kind of begin to assess over the, this next week, don't, don't give in to this whole sense of like, it's as horrible as it was last year. Well, it's not as horrible because you haven't been left to yourself. God's delivered you and he's slowly changing over time. So we're going to pick back up in the story. So we mentioned Herod and we're going to look at him now. Herod is a real dirtbag and so we're going to get to know him a little bit. Um, because here Jesus has evaded Herod, and then we get back to the story of Herod. So verse 16 to 18. 
our unrecognized comfort. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that and and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So here's the deal. Uh, Herod is a real a real dirtbag. Um, and this is actually not the main thing that makes him, like, he's not just, like, just this event. This, uh, this event um, actually is the only record of it. Um, it's not mentioned in Josephus, who is, uh, Josephus was a first century Jewish historian. He doesn't record it. Um, it's not anywhere else, but it's here. And that's probably because on the scale of, like, one to ten of all the bad things that Herod did, it probably doesn't rank that high, even though it sounds pretty horrible. Um, let me give you a sense. I'm, I'm just going to kind of list off a few things that on, on Herod's resume, right? So Herod was uh, preceded by his two his two predecessors for his job, right? He was he was the king uh, in terms of Roman rule at the time. Uh, it was a bit of like a franchise, and they kind of set him up, and he was the guy running this running Israel. And so the two guys that he had uh, had been running the place before him, um, he not only killed them. He killed all their supporters. So you imagine like, you know, the political campaign list. <laughs> like he killed all their supporters and all of their family, right? So you're racking up like, like two or 300 people at that point, right? It, he killed them because he, he wanted to secure his, I'm the king and nobody else. He's the big man on the top with the big stick, right? So he kills them. Later in his life, there was an assassination attempt on Herod's life. Uh, 10 conspirators, um, they got caught and so he had not only the 10 conspirators killed, but all their families. So we're talking, you know, five or 600 people now that are just on the list of people that Herod decided to kill because they posed a threat to him. Uh, he later killed his three older sons because they had married into his predecessor's families. And so <laughs> he killed them and their families. I'm just like, this dude is like totally insane. I mean, if you think our politics are crazy, I mean, can you imagine living through this, right? Right. And then, just to top it off, when he died, he had this plan that all the Jewish nobility were to be killed just to secure that all the people who mourned his death were like serious about it. <laughs> right? Could you imagine, right, to ensure that the mourning of his death was like legitimate, that he was going to have all the Jewish nobility killed off. Thankfully, that one didn't get pulled off. I mean, that this I mean, this guy is insane. So, so you have that kind of like on the list. And so when you talk about this situation that happens in Bethlehem, where he's like, okay, uh, I've, got a, I've, I've got a threat to my throne. Uh, whoever this guy is, he's a little baby, I'm going to have him killed. And I don't know who he is, so we're just going to take out all the, all the little boys to and under. Probably, it's not like a huge number. Like Christian, Christian tradition has amplified this to be like a thousand. It, it's not great, but it still might have been more like 10 to 20 just because Bethlehem was a little tall, small, like, trailer park town, and there wasn't a lot of kids there. So that's kind of, like, the background of what's going on in the story. Because when we read this, we're kind of like, what is going on? This guy is insane. Oh, you think he's insane? Let me tell you about it. You know, this guy is totally crazy. So, right, when he kills the kids, two and under, it still matters. Um, and it's not insignificant. Right, that, the, I think the important thing here to mention is that while all this is going on, right, you have like this huge, you know, 
monster of, of a leader going down. Um, and this is the only record of this situation. Um, God took notice, right? It wasn't insignificant to God. God saw the suffering and pain of the world around him. Even as he sends Jesus into this story, into our story, Jesus is embedded in a story of suffering and pain. Right? When Jesus, the Christmas story, I don't know, we'd have a lot of the lights and the Christmas paper and the nativity scenes, but around it is, in this story, total suffering and mayhem. Right? Their suffering was not insignificant, which is why God gives words to their suffering. Right? There's this poem here at the end about lamenting. God, this is not right. Which actually begins to sound a little bit more familiar to our Christmas stories. Right? I don't know what Christmas is like for you, but it's often it feels like a broken Christmas for most of us or some of us. People that aren't here lost jobs, lost family, lost comforts that we had last year, right? Lost friends, lost relationships, lost health. You can go down the list. Uh, all the reasons that we have to approach Christmas, and it's supposed to be all like sunny and happy, but really I'm dying inside. Well, in this Christmas story, people are dying inside. Right? This, um, this happy face on the outside and crying on the inside is actually a part of the Christmas story. I just want to say, this is a part of the reason why we're, we're building as a church is that sort of stuff is okay. It's okay to not be okay, and it's okay to come out and just say, look, I need somebody just to, I need and to unload. This is a safe place to be able to say, you know what, Christmas is not very fun for me. And we want to bear that with you and pray for you. Like, this is not, it's a part of what it means to be the disciples of Jesus, because Jesus' own story, his own Christmas story, it was filled with suffering and pain. And so there's a few things I want you to hear about this, is that um, the first thing to hear from this is that Jesus knows he sees your pain that's going on on the inside. He sees the pain and suffering that you're going through. He sees it. It's not insignificant to him. He sees what's going on. He sees the crying on the inside. He sees the late night weeping. He sees all the struggles that you're going through, all the sadness. And then Jesus actually gives words for you. He sings this song, right? This song was selected to give voice to this great loss. But if you want to know what Jesus sings over you with your suffering and pain, just turn to the book of Psalms. He sings and says, God, this is not right. This is not okay. It's not supposed to be this way. Jesus gives a voice to your suffering and your pain. He's not immune to it. Right? I don't know if you ever experienced this with your friends or your families. You try to explain what's going on. And I, I've developed this little mental box where it's like well-intentioned but not helpful, <laughs> to say the least. And it's a little black box where I put it and I never look there again <laughs> because I want to maintain this friendship. Jesus doesn't have that. Jesus knows, he sees, he experiences, he knows the depths of pain and suffering. And so he gives these words for you. So if you're struggling this Christmas, 
maybe just pick up the book of Psalms and just start reading. God, this is not right, but I want I want hope because your Savior is not He's not indifferent to your suffering. Which also leads to the third thing I just want to say about this is that Jesus is with you. Right? As much as Jesus' story is a part of suffering and pain in Christmas, he's with you in your broken Christmas. He's with you in what's going on that's pain-filled and makes your soul cry. Jesus is there to comfort you. Right? So maybe the story seems a little bit odd. Like, why is this here in the Christmas story? But it's, it's actually an unrecognized comfort for our souls that the Christmas story actually accounts for the pain and suffering and loss that we all talk about and don't address at Christmas. All right, we're going to pick up, we're going to finish the story. We're going to look at his unrecognized simplicity. So we've been talking about how he fled to Egypt and now he is delivering us, his unrecognized deliverance. We've been talking about how, as a part of his story, it's his unrecognized comfort. He actually comes in and cares for us in the midst of suffering of Christmas and then we're going to see his, we're going to look now, verses 19 to 23, his unrecognized simplicity. So here we go. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. All right, so everything, all the immediate dangers, they're all gone. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, so this is one of Herod's sons, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, understandably. And being warned in a dream, he drew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, right? So if Bethlehem was Potunk, this is like Potunk beyond Potunk, Nazareth. So that he was, spoke, was spoken by the prophets went, uh, might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. <laughs> so, this is pretty self-explanatory, right? Here is uh, Jesus, right? This is how he eventually got to his hometown. And his hometown is called Nazareth, right? And actually, uh, it was a bit disputed if Nazareth ever existed. But recent archaeology has actually proven that there's a real place called Nazareth. The problem here, uh, the problem with this passage is that um, verse 23, and he went to live in a city called Nazareth, so it was spoken by the prophets, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's not a literal verse in the Bible when the Old Testament says he shall be called a Nazarene. Partly, mostly, because uh, there's actually, uh, Nazareth, Nazareth hadn't developed until like that century. So there wasn't, there wasn't like an Old Testament prophet that said, um, God has told me, that there will be a, a town called Nazareth and he shall dwell there and that's why he will be called a Nazarene. But I think that there's actually more going on in this passage than just kind of like a literal fulfillment, right? Because we could say like, there's all these passages in Isaiah where we could say, look, Jesus fulfills this. But I think there's a shape of what the Old Testament guys are describing. They're, they're looking forward and saying, okay, we're going to describe what the, what the Messiah is going to be like. And so we see that, and one of the places we see that is in Zechariah. So the book of Zechariah, here, can we throw this up? A simple savior, right? So Zechariah 9 through 14, right? There's actually, it describes God's shepherd, his king, the guy who's going to come and save his people, the deliverer. And he's going to come, he's going to be humble, but his authority is not going to be accepted by his people. He's going to literally be pierced by Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's going to pierce him. And he's going to be struck down by God's sword. 
If you know the gospel story, that sounds very familiar, right? This is a savior who's not going to be recognized, who's going to be really simple, and he's not going to be what people are looking for. Even in Isaiah 53, right, he is the one that nobody, like, he's, there's nothing about him where he's like, uh, you know, he's not the Brad Pitt of the time where guys are like, yeah, that guy looks like, like a savior dude. <laughs> Nothing about him looks like he's going to be the king. And so when it says he's going to be called a Nazarene here in our, in our story, I think what that's meaning to say is um, he's a nobody from a nobody town, right? He's not what you're expecting. He's not what you're looking for. He's not exactly uh, up to your measure if you were to describe, um, like if you were to go down on a list, okay, I want my king to be, um, I want to look masculine, right? I want to look ripped. I want him to have a good thick beard. I want him to be real ma- like muscular, right? I want him to like have like intellectual like prestige. I want him to have, you know, blah blah, you know, he's going to have all these lists. Jesus is a simple guy from a simple town to be a simple savior. He's not what people were expecting. So, when it says he was called a Nazarene, it's shorthand for being he was a nobody from a nobody town. Which I think is actually pretty, um, pretty incredible and encouraging because it indicates that God loves the simplicity of life. God loves simple people uh, that might be from a town like Manchester or Bedford or Goffstown or Derry. God loves simple people. He loves simplicity. People who do their dishes, people who take out the trash, people who care for their kids, pay their bills, who work their jobs. I mean, can you imagine Jesus did all these things? Jesus would have set the table. He would have, you know, been a carpenter, right? I mean, he probably hit his thumb with the hammer. You know, he went grocery shopping. He did simple things in life. Did his laundry, did his dishes, walked on dusty roads. He was a simple guy. God loves and he blesses, actually, by Jesus being a simple savior, he actually blesses those things in our lives. Like when we, are, when we do the dishes and we do the normal chores of life that seem like, I wish I could pay somebody else to do this stuff, you know? Jesus actually blesses those things by becoming a savior who delights in being a part of those things. But he didn't just come to bless the simplicity of life, right? Jesus, the whole point of Christmas is that Jesus was born to die. He came as an unpresuming, un- unsexy, uninteresting guy. He came in simplicity to live a simple life that brought incredible glory to God. And then in fact, his throne at the end of his life is made up of two simple logs tied together and he's nailed on his throne. Right? The purpose of Christmas is that Jesus came to die, to be our king, to save us, to deliver us from all of our enslavement to ourselves by dying in our place, to die on a cross so that we could be saved and renewed and refreshed and recreated and remade in the image of God from the inside out so that the simplicity of our lives are now injected and informed and shaped and carried along by the Savior who lived a simple life and died a simple death so that we could become people who make much of Jesus who, do, who show what he's like in the simplicity of our lives. Right? At Christmas, we often get kind of hung up on like, I want all the lights. I mean, I feel this for myself. I want all the lights. I want all the, the Christmas stuff for my kid. It's going to be fun. It's going to be grand. 
But at the, at the core, at the end of the day, I'm left, I'm just myself, at the face of God, and Jesus comes and lives a simple life to fill the gap, right? So that the simplicity of our lives, whatever those look like, he makes us new. He was born so that he would die and deliver us, right? This deliverance we've been talking about. Jesus comes and delivers us from ourselves, but he doesn't do it in glitz and glam and hype. He does it through simplicity. Right, Jesus comes and he comforts us by his life. He comforts us now, but he doesn't do it by a great show or you know, awesome music or an incredible speaker or awesome graphics or whatever. He comes in the simplicity of words to speak comfort and care to our hearts. You see, Jesus actually comes and gives us real hope. Maybe stuff that we hadn't been looking for, unrecognized up until now. Gives us real hope at Christmas. Gives us real hope because he was in himself. He was an unrecognized king for who he was. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ we have a savior, we have a king who is unrecognized but gives us hope and changes us because of who he is. Lord, give us true hope in our unrecognized king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.